1: Liberty's leave policy was tremendous. Having the ability to take 16 weeks off fully paid to bond with my child was an incredible experience.
2: At Liberty Mutual, you can find a career that supports you at every step,
1: even baby steps. We offer up to 16 weeks parental leave for new moms and dads. And because not everyone's pathway to parenthood looks the same, we offer robust fertility, surrogacy,
2: and adoption benefits, too. Learn more at LibertyMutualCareers.com and pursue your tomorrow today. Hello, Humane listeners. Artificial intelligence isn't the future, it's the here and now. And Manning Publications wants to help you get up to speed with some of the most coveted skills in the industry. From machine learning to computer vision, Manning is working with the most talented experts to help you get an edge in the world of AI. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned programmer, Manning has content for everyone. And now, if you go to deals.manning.com humane, and use the code PODHUMANE19, you can get 40% off of any of our hand-picked books and video courses for Humane listeners. There's no better time than now to get started. So again, that's deals.manning.com slash H-U-M-A-I-N. Today's guest speaker leads impact practices in the data for good movement at DataKind. Listen in as Jake Porway and I discuss how constructive uses of AI can create positive social outcomes, why it is unfair to ask big tech to solve community challenges, and what impact practices are creating equitable outcomes in the USA. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jacobovich and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest who I had the opportunity to meet about four years ago at uh, a hackathon for Data for Good in New York City. Today's guest is Jake Porway. He's an expert in the field of data and technology, and he's the founder and executive director of DataKind. They run global uh, data-based events around data science and AI for good, for humanity, and been at it since 2011. I, again, had a great opportunity to meet Jake a few years ago and worked on uh, one of these cool data jams. So, uh, Jake, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. And I think you're being a little bit humble because you were one of our data ambassadors who actually helped scope and set up a project with the LA Mayor's Office so that other technologists could work on it. And that is no small role. That's huge. So really glad that uh, you got to join us that way.
2: Uh, thank you. I love it. I think one of the best ways for anyone, if you're a new student in data science or you're someone who's a veteran to the field, to constantly learn and to be part of teams is to give back your time. You know, And I've had the opportunity to do that with DataKind, volunteering, and uh, that was a great project. And uh, one thing I never mentioned that was really cool is then I was at this dinner uh, i think a few weeks later and it just so happened that someone from the mayor's office in los angeles was there and i was talking about the topic and they said this is so cool so i can only hope that you know great things follow through from this projects Oh, that's wonderful absolutely well anyway here we are today uh closing out 2019 and there's been so much going on in the data and ai world and you know, part of the reason I brought to life the Humane podcast, and we were talking just a few minutes earlier about human centered movement and human centered design, is there's so much parallels about what products can be created and what people can work on these products and what processes can be in place. But often, the piece that people forget about is engaging community, engaging activism, and getting everyone involved. So, I'd love to hear about how Datakind's been doing that recently with your mission and uh, what use cases are evolving as a result.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for folks who may not be familiar with Datakind, I'll say that we're a nonprofit dedicated to using data science and AI explicitly in the service of humanity. And the idea was really born of this realization that there are, as the data you know revolution has occurred over the last 10 years, huge opportunities not just for businesses to use these algorithms to increase profits or efficiency, but also social change organizations. You find nonprofits and government agencies and civil society actors are now awash in data from digital data they collect to mobile-based initiatives, to satellite imagery. And so the question was, you know, what would it take to bring data science and algorithms responsibly to their causes? Because they're already at the front line of social change every day. And so DataKind is really kind of set up uh, as a little bit like a Doctors Without Borders for data geeks, where we would, uh, technologists from uh, big tech companies or from academia, volunteer their time alongside social organizations to co-create design solutions that really work in the benefit of humanity. And of course, as you mentioned, you are a a part of one of the many events we do. We sometimes run weekend events that are like modified hackathons, where we work with organizations, uh, actually, as you saw, for months ahead of time to understand where's your data problem, where's the data... That might be possible. Maybe more importantly, where do data science and algorithms have no value to bring? Let's not even bother going there. And then have a bunch of technologists work over the weekend on those challenges. But we, we also do long-term projects where folks sign up with our data core to work for six to nine months on uh, longer-term engagements. And so I think just to tell a quick story about what this looks like, there's a group that we worked with uh, called the Molten Water District. And their whole mandate is to make sure that people in Southern California get water, and especially as with the climate crisis, more droughts are occurring in that area. And one of the challenges they face is they really have to have accurate information about how much water people are going to consume, because if they run out or if they misestimate that, really their only recourse is to take a dump truck, drive it out to another state, fill it up with a hose, fill it with water, drive it back. Uh, and it's an incredibly disruptive, costly maneuver. It's bad for the environment. So you really want to limit the amount of times that happens. And so they were wondering, you know, could, could data and algorithms help us predict you know, how much people are going to consume more accurately? And so we found some folks who were environmental conservationists and even the chief data scientist at Netflix, of all people that volunteer on this project to see what they could do with data that the district had, as well as digital data that was available out in uh, the public space. And after about nine months, they came up with an algorithm that was accurate at uh, predicting down to the block level, at about 90% accuracy, how much people are going to consume. And this would update over the season. And in the first season of using this, the water district estimated to save them about $25 million in allowing them to deliver water more effectively to folks. So that's just sort of a, a little sample of what I, you know, a project that is a very typical data kind of project. And uh, just to name what I really love about it is that this is not the technologists coming in and saying, hey, we know what you need, or going off in a room on their own to, to build something that'd be, that'd be foisted on the social sector. The core to our work is co-creation. These are folks that really kind of try to paint the picture of saying, it, hey, what if this Molten Water District had Google's engineering team, and they were all kind of embedded with the project, what could they do? And so it's been, uh, yeah, very, very exciting over the Last eight years to see this grow to about uh, 20,000 volunteers around the world, represented in most countries. We've got chapters in cities, Bangalore, Singapore, the UK, San Francisco, and DC. And uh, yeah, done over 300 projects helping social change organizations get a little further on their own community-based goals with technology.
2: You know, I think this uh, use case you just described was a phenomenal project because it does hit so much to home for everyone in the United States today. We see in the news every other week about the wildfires that have been you know, involved in California since going back to 2017. And I recall actually when we worked on one of those David GM projects, even in 2015, I think wildfires and forest fires, this is one of the topics that are being explored. So it's amazing to see that, you know, um, regardless of unfortunately, you know, climate change and, and everything that's going on, that You know, you're able to bring people together for a common good and to create results that are saving uh, municipalities and saving lives. And I think that's amazing for water. I think that's amazing for clean drinking. And that's for everyone of every socioeconomic status. I think one of the biggest takeaways I just took away from your story, which is coming off the heels of another conference I attended in New York City about open source in the past few weeks, mm. is that open source has created so much access. And the exact word you just used before was that you can have the quality of Google engineers, even at your NGO or nonprofit, because of open source, because of all these projects. Yeah. You know? And I think that's a huge part of what DataKind's been working with.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when you talk about humans in the loop, I think this is really, our goal is to help humans on both sides. And, and in a way, actually be a little bit of the, really get data kind of out of the way, to be honest. We just see ourselves as empowering those who would otherwise work together if there just weren't so many blockers in the way. So, of course, there are social change organizations that are working on everything from reducing homelessness to making sure that there's more racial equity in our country to stopping infant mortality that are... Care deeply about these human causes uh, could be boosted by technology. And then on the other side, tons of compassionate technologists who realize they've got skills in it, whether it's you know coding or uh, analytics or uh, machine learning who could be using those skills for those problems, but of course don't can engage on that on their own. And so I think really what kind of fills me with joy really is uh, being able to help connect these folks and not just connect it. Someone once said. Uh, you're kind of like a matchmaker and a relationship counselor, but I'll like facilitate how folks can work together and make this a space where the focus is not like so much of our technology lives are about building it, building the app right, or making the cool thing, but I actually started from a principle of what does a community want, what does a community need to see done, and then how could technology support that or not? I think that's often sometimes the most useful learning lesson is there's not a place for data here or the risk is too high, and so it's maybe better to do something else. But that's what I really like is that it's, it's all about folks who share a vision of the world being better and technology having a role in it working together.
2: And I think that's brilliant because I was looking at some of these top surveys on, you know, how are projects being completed at both startups and NGOs and multinational companies. And what it said is back in 2015, this is just as the data surge was starting to occur, you know, somewhere about, you know, 30 to 50 to one for having data or designer individuals compared to software engineers at companies. And now we fast forward to 2019 and it's somewhere from a five to one to nine to one ratio now of having data scientists and human-centered designers and design thinking at organizations. So it's no longer just you gotta build the product, but is the product gonna be used? And are we thinking about what is the best way to use these tools?
1: I think that's really exciting. And, I, you know, as you look at kind of the AI debate today, I think there's a lot, very necessary conversation about the proper use of AI, the ethical use of AI in our society. And I think what you're seeing is you know, folks are realizing that as this technology is being rolled out in applications and applications and being released into society, we may not have done enough of that human-centered design upfront and really reined in the, the limitations of this work. You know, there's, there's outcries against Uber putting self-driving cars in the street. And at least in one case actually killed someone potentially because of improper testing. I don't say that I think that's improper, but it's up for debate with what is, uh, yeah, how that would, why that was rolled out the way it was. The, uh, you know, I think the questions about facial surveillance, you know, facial recognition and what that means for surveillance, privacy are huge. I think what's, you know, when we look at what people are asking for, they're saying, look, what I hear in the conversation is like, we want we want to live by our societal values that we believe in and, and that some of this technology might be encroaching on it. And so I think there's a, a very strong kind of pushback say we need to, you know, ban this technology. We need to stop what's happening with it. Uh, it's creating, I don't even, I think any of your listeners probably are aware of all the headlines about um, reinforcing racial bias, increasing systemic inequity, you know, real, real, true problems. And so I, I will say, I, I want that work to continue because I, happen to agree. I think this technology needs more guardrails and possibly regulation. I'll say my personal, I don't know why, I'd cap, why I qualified that. I think it needs some regulation. But what I think is like missing from this conversation is the constructive path forward. That framing sort of sets it up as the global north and large tech companies are going to visit AI upon us. And it's the citizen's job to push back. And I think there is, of course, again, that dynamic. But where's the space for a conversation around, all right, and if we could build take advantage of the opportunities of this technology for what we as humans want, what would that look like? And I think that's where I'm like very excited to see the conversation evolve and something we're trying to push here at data is to say, well, everything we dislike about what we call un- you know, by uh, implication, unethical AI, how would we need to organize ourselves to build the alternative? And so I will say, you know, at, at data kind, one thing that we're working on is trying to look at what the kind of next level up of a solution could look like beyond just working with one organization. So like the example I told you about with Multinigale, like that solves one problem for Multinigale Water District. That's great. What if you want to take a step back and say, you know, Multinigale is trying to tackle water availability in drought climates. That's a problem that affects lots of groups outside of Niguel's water district. It affect, It depends on actors even within that water district that are not just Multinigale itself, depends on consumers, depends on law, et cetera. If you want to step back and say, not just how do we help them be more efficient, but how might we actually use AI to re- or machine learning? I, I'm sure you've caveated many times on your <laughs> this podcast about that the meaning of that term. But I'll just say, if you were to say how to use this digital technology for that challenge, well, that's a very interesting and, and fairly complex problem. And so you could imagine there could be things like maybe this uh, water demand predictor could work for many organizations. But to even figure that out, you'd have to work with so many different groups to understand their workflows. You'd have to get so many different data sources from them because they all have different data. And then in the end, it wouldn't be enough just to build the water need predictor. If you really want to build this kind of ethical AI in the way that communities define what it does, you need to also make sure that community members and social activists are involved in the process from design all the way to the oversight of the system to say we're not done until until it achieves what we want it to achieve. And so that's a very different model than saying We'll work with an organization one-on-one. And so at Data of what we're trying to do here is something we call impact practices where we find areas like issue areas that we think seem that there are a lot of folks are organized around them that have enough data and funding and interest to then say, oh, great, let's do portfolios of projects with all of these partners, help them individually, sure, but also learn from that about where there might be these prototypes or opportunities or data sets that could actually grow to help folks at scale, help many people. Or maybe, I mean, we're certainly not going to go so far to say we could solve a social problem. And I'm making big air quotes with my fingers. But I think until we get technologists and, and communities and social uh, organizations working together, we may not even know the answer to whether there's even something we could do and what it would look like without that. So I, I will just pause there to say, I think in this whole ethical AI conversation, we need a constructive voice. And getting to do that beyond just the one-off projects and towards issuers is, a, is a, a fundamentally different human-centered design problem than I think we're often faced with in the field.
2: I think that's so right. And, you know, another research that was just announced in November 2019 was that, you know, GitHub, uh, this big open source platform where a lot of developers put their code, said that the state of the Octoverse came out. This is their yeah. annual report on the state of developers. And they said, we now have over 40 million developers on the platform. And, you know, everyone said, wow, that's, that's amazing, so many developers. But they said, of those 40 million, Ten million joined in 2018. Wow! So it, that that is the growth that we're seeing in the developer community, and all these developers do have the opportunity, as as you put it, to have that voice, right, to speak about not just the ethical implications. We see a lot of you know packages coming out, and all these programming languages like Python that say this is the metric, this is the tool to make sure you're being ethical, responsible, humane. But I think the phrase that you just shared, I've heard a couple times this year unethical AI. I think that is a new emerging discipline that when you think of human-centered design, we do have to think about what is not just ethical, but what's unethical. It's almost like you know, back in school with our synonyms and antonyms. It's this or it's not <laughs> that, right? So I think I think that's so important because when we think of these impact practices, all these areas are critical to society. And If they don't receive the attention of racial bias, of system inequality, of clean drinking water are not something that we focus on, well, then they're going to degrade over time and we'll have situations like, shall I say, uh, the area of Venice, Italy that is underwater because of the amount of, you know, corruption and political infighting that they've spent now almost 20 years, maybe some even say. 40 years to get these water floodgate systems up for the city they haven't been able to so i think we are able to in the united states i think these impact practices are areas that we're drawing the attention to as you say you know with the right data the right funding the right interest i think it's possible we have to keep humans in the loop you know just recently on one of the political uh, debates for the democratic party you know it was mentioned that one of the candidates uh this year he uh, andrew yang from new york had spoken about Data, we all need data. AI, we have to think about AI. He's the only, <laughs> you know, whether, um, you know, wherever that will take the conversation, I think is the most important part of that theme to what he's brought up in the debates is where as a society are we thinking about being data first, AI first in the service of community?
1: Yeah, and I think you bring up a lot of really interesting points there. I mean, I think the, to your point about so many GitHub developers joining, I think there are, it's exciting to see that more and more folks are gaining not just technology skills, but it being involved in open source communities. And I think that the you know to me, that's also the lesson of, of Datakind is that there are a lot, so many opportunities outside of, of work, if you happen to, you know, be privileged enough to have a good job and have some time outside of this, where you can you can command what you want to use this this tool for and this technology for, whether that's joining an open source community to build a game that you like or Joining sort of this open source movement of working with social organizations to see some social change. So I think the opportunities are more are greater than ever. I do think finding and matching that opportunity, like if you know free developer time to a a meaningful problem, is is it is where the really you know hard part comes in, where the human centered design piece is so critical because you can't just knock on the door of say the Red Cross and say, "Hi, I'm a coder. What do you need coded?" It's, <laughs> it's a whole whole process as you experience with us to really getting to something folks can work on. So I think that's that's sort of one of the next frontiers that we need to work on is to start saying, what are the problems that we can you know, go through a discovery process with? How do we scope out problems folk, folks can help with? So I think that's, I think that's critical. I want to comment on one other thing that you mentioned there though, um, in terms of you know, bringing up the, you know, obviously the news about Venice you know, being underwater, not being able to, to resolve the, the flood situation and think about uh, what's unethical AI or ethical AI. Um, I, I kind of want to say like, to me, I think AI is honestly a huge red herring in this whole conversation the way I look at it, AI is just a big accelerant, right? It's uh, it's just like software. I mean, it is just software. It's lighter fluid on whatever goal you set it towards, whatever system you, you put it on. And so I hesitate a little bit even hearing it said back to me as like unethical AI. There's ethical, I, I think in the end, it's, there are different systems that are designed to do different things and they will use AI for the goals they have. So it's, you know companies and I don't mean this disparagingly, are, are by law designed to grow and get big, to make profits. That, that's why you incorporate a company. And so understandably, AI, when those situations built by and for companies, is going to be used for growth. And I think where we're seeing tension is, of course, some of that growth comes at the cost of other social elements that we've come to rely on, hence the tension. But I think what's also important is even, you know, going to the social sector and saying, hey, there's good stuff we want to fight on, like we don't want, you know, Venice to be underwater, does not by nature imply that just that the AI will be able to apply there. I do argue that, of course, AI built by and for folks within the social sector, at least is more incentivized to reach the out- the social outcomes we want over anything else. But hey, let's face it, a lot of our social problems are human problems, <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, AI will make a racist criminal justice system more racist, it'll accelerate those racial outcomes, but it's not going to solve racism, right? It's not going to actually make us more racially equitable. Oh my God, if it can, please someone tell me about that project. But, um, you know, similarly, we have a lot of, squ- you know, as humans, constantly debating policy and what we want to see in the world. As someone with bad faith using AI will use that to advance their their uh, bad faith policy. But I don't know that there's an AI solution to getting folks to see eye to eye or uh, reason about the the kind of world that we want to live in, because that is an inherently messy human process with no no clear objective function. So just want to say, I think the, the kind of, you know, humble t- stance I would take on all of this is like, as an accelerant, there are some systems and working social elements that AI could help with, but, you know, they are select and the trick is finding them and really promoting them as opposed to thinking that it could, you know, that is naturally ethical if you're doing it for a quote for a good cause, or that it can solve all of the social human challenges, because unfortunately, those are really the toughest ones to solve.
2: You know, what I loved in that, what you just shared, Jake, is I heard so many great things about what's needed for uh, community building and for open source, you know, uh, two of the big phrases that you just used were policy and process. And that's usually, I think, where everything gets started, right? We talk about what's needed to create the change. And then you have projects. And these are all the projects that DataKind's working on in in the short term and, and the medium and the long term. And then ultimately, I think the next part is standards, right? Creating open Mm -hmm. standards, which, you know, can be, you know, available for many organizations. And some of that is these software packages that we're seeing online on platforms like GitHub for different code bases. But I think we're just getting started with standards. I think when we talk about human-centered design ethics, there isn't very much standards today. Everyone has an opinion, but, you know, the European Union came out with their whole report on what they think the standards for data and AI is. They came out with a 67-page report just a few months ago. <laughs> and I said, "Wow, that's that's amazing, but what action can we take? What strategy? What what cultural changes will happen from these standards?" So I'm just curious, you know, what your take is on open standards and and how that might be defined or, or reshaped over the next year.
1: I think, you know, standards like you said very naturally come out of uh, community processes and, and say, Hey, well, this is a, a policy by which we can all work together. I don't know that I have a lot of, you know, kind of profound feelings about standards in this space, except that I think we are struggling right now with setting standards for humane or ethical AI, because we're, again, we're sort of focused on the AI as opposed to the goals and constraints of the system it's being designed in. So for example, there's been a large push for ethical AI standards uh, for computer scientists and AI engineers, machine learning folks to adhere to. And that is a very natural, I think, step towards you know, standardizing our practice. The problem I found is, one, there's no standard set of ethical principles. I think at this point there's got to be 50 to 100 that I've seen now. Uh, they're, they're all great. like there's not like a bad one or one that's particularly better or worse. It's just that everyone seems to have wanted to create their own. But, but more than that, I think standards are only as good as your ability to enforce them. And one of the things I found really interesting about the ethical AI standards debate is there seems to be this belief that the engineers, or at least there's one school of thought that if engineers were trained in ethics or had more ethical frameworks, maybe we wouldn't have some of the outcomes we have in companies today. But I think about what it would mean for an engineer to stand by their code of ethics in a, a corporation. You know, The, the one is like, one challenge to the accountability of this standard is there's a chance, unless you have a particularly um, a company with a strong whistleblower policy, and, and obviously everyone has that one legally, but a strong record of standing up for its people, you have to risk at least your reputation, if not your job, to speak up. So you say, hey, I don't think what we're building here is, is good. I don't want to build the, whatever, the facial recognition algorithm that I think that I, I feel is racially biased. So that, that's one is like it's, there's a real cost to doing that. And we've seen some incredibly I find disheartening examples of Google actually removing folks and letting them go who uh, spoke up about um, ethical practices at AI uh, at Google. so I'm, uh, so that's one is you got to take huge personal risk. I think then beyond that it's challenging to actually know what is an ethical risk. I mean some things are sort of low hanging fruit, right? You know if you test facial recognition on uh, different different complexions, different races, if it's not performing accurately on all of them, well then maybe that's not a very good algorithm. That's pretty low hanging fruit. What about stuff like, um, you know, coming up with a better routing algorithm for Google Maps? If, you know, there may be systems level effects you haven't anticipated, like for the fact that people realized in the early deployments of that algorithm, cars are being rerouted off of crowded highways Mm -hmm. into uh, side streets that are basically congesting, probably poor, usually uh, low low, uh, economic status communities that live by the highway. So you created like a social, an unintended social consequence. So you probably aren't able to actually estimate that at the time that you're, you know, get the assignment from your boss. Hey, you know, upgrade the algorithm, decrease uh, people's route times. And then like, lastly, it's like, I don't think you want the engineer making that decision. I mean, if the engineer were aware of that, like, do you want the Google engineer in isolation, making a decision about whether (laughs) routing through, uh, you know, a small side street in these cases, 70% of the time is, is good or bad for our society. Like, no, that, that needs much more oversight from the rest of the world. So, I'll just say, like, I think we're in a little bit of frontier land with any of these standards, be they these ethical codes, be they how AI should or shouldn't be used, be they just data standards for what's um, sort of proper labeling of data sets such that you'll have, you know, even just racially equitable and gender equitable outcomes from the algorithm. It's, it's tricky. And I think what we really need more than standards right now are actually just standard accountability methods. We need uh, ways for citizens and folks who and consumers to have oversight and agency to speak up when these algorithms don't do what we want them to do. I think that's ultimately the the kind of solution at this point before we even get to standards.
2: Yeah, I cannot agree more on this. You know, I had the opportunity just a few days ago in New York to go for the first time to an Amazon Go store. And these are these new stores that Amazon launched where there are no cashiers. You know, I, I took the Amazon app, hmm. I scanned the QR code, and I went into the store and then and it was like, wow, where's the technology? How is there no cashiers? I looked up to the ceiling. There were, I don't know, at least 500 cameras connected to a huh. mesh of so many wires and signals just to be able to capture my every movement in the store to make sure it knew <laughs> which item I was grabbing. And you know, I just got like a you know a $2 vitamin water, just one item. You know, <laughs> picked up a Coca-Cola, put it back, grabbed the vitamin water, just to see if it could could recognize it and it did and, and I was so blown away by the technology but of course that's for me as a white Caucasian male right? so it doesn't mean that would right. be for, for everyone and so I said okay here's a case that's maybe working and and perhaps with more label data we can get there but then the other day I had a case that for me actually was almost upsetting but was was comical is that um, I love the Google Photos app so Google has their Photos <laughs> yeah. app you know where you can you know back up when they're free cloud storage. And then if you're ever trying to recall your photos, oh, what was the picture of my dog, right? You could type the phrase dog and then it comes up and I see my you know beautiful Scottish Boston Terrier. Um, (laughs) And then I said, what about my old dog, the one that died a couple of years ago? And so I type, you know, Sheltie, Shetland Sheepdog, and it comes up and then it shows and then I had the name of the dog. So I typed the name of the dog in. And then not only did that dog come up, but it thought a different Shetland sheepdog that I took a picture of in Central Park was the same dog as my dog that died two years ago. So, you know, for me, it was comical in the sense. But it, it was just showing right, right. that facial recognition technology does have a long way to go because how is the ai going to know to label those those dogs as different animals it thinks it's still the same species of sheltie right there's still a, a white person or a black person so i think there's there's a lot of work to be done there and some of the work I think we're going to see, I had a few months ago on the Humane podcast, I had the CEO of Cloud Factory, Mark Sears, on. And I know they just recently raised a $65 million round uh, a few weeks ago to expand data labeling because, you know, uh, yeah. you can have the AI machine learning, you can have the feature engineering cleaning, but if you don't have the labeled data, well, where is it going to leave you at?
1: Yeah, I think that that's totally. And you're at right, low stakes when it's, you and me buying a vitamin water or looking at our photos, but when these are being used for say um, predicting recidivism and being used in criminal sentencing or, you know, I, there's so many horror stories out right now, like the different allowances given by Apple card, the different genders, like then that actually has like real implications on people's lives. And I think there's, there's a great, actually talk just came out a few days ago. Uh, give, I hope he forgives me if he hears this. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but I think it's Arvind Narayanan who's a professor of computer science at uh, Princeton, who gave a talk called How to Recognize AI Snake Oil. And I think one of the most prescient slides that that was really great was sort of talking about, he says this kind of breakdown of, you know, what are the things that where we, where AI is like pretty proven, like machine learning has worked pretty well in terms of like medical diagnosis from scans or like we're making genuine rapid progress on, you know, reverse image search, audio search, He's got another section that around automating judgment. That's like it's imperfect right now, but it's improving, like spam detection and copyright violation. And then the, there's a whole category that are, he, he labels, you know, fundamentally dubious. Not to say that these don't necessarily work, but should already sort of have your awareness up. And these are particularly around predicting social outcomes, you know, predicting at-risk children, predictive policing. And I think that's that's maybe the the frame that we need to be thinking about with all this stuff is, uh, you know, to point in these imperfect systems. You know, what are the outcomes for which we may be able to say, well, I think I'm taking on less risk in this system, or, or I can understand why machine learning would be better at that task than another task. Because right now, I think it's all, again, it's under this gigantic and too expansive umbrella of AI, digital tech, which, you know, people use to mean anything from, you know, generalized uh, AI to just a computer did something, you know. Uh, so I think that maybe one path through this as things get risky that's constructive is A, Get a little more literacy on just what segments we're doing pretty well on versus where we might want to be a little more skeptical, and then also I'm a big fan of the um, the About ML project that the partnership on AI is doing, and I, I feel so bad I can't remember what the acronym About stands for, but the point of the uh, the working group is to come up with uh, sort of an explainable. Version of what algorithms are doing that sits between the kind of marketing hype of like how much progress this AI is going to make and how much it's going to save you money, it doesn't really tell you much about the algorithm, and the alternative, which seems to be like spec sheets and like the you know the code documentation, which is way too technical for a, most audiences. It's kind of a middle ground between a number of companies saying we've got to have some way for folks, to be like users or even just the public, to understand enough about what this thing is doing or not to know how we should use it or not. So, one did. Pick some constructive steps forward because it's, it's too easy to point to all the you know negative articles about this stuff these days. But I think some of those uh, kind of projects to increase literacy are really helpful for understanding how and why these systems work the way they do.
2: Yeah, and you know I think uh, you said it best is that. We're often very prone to blame, but that's because, you know, we want to have a better life, a better quality of living. And this technology that we're starting to see is so new, right? This AI implementation whether we call it AI, machine learning, deep learning, data science, bundle it all together. It's only been out the past few years, and I think it will get better over time. But we as citizens, we should have uh, the advocacy and we should have the agency to participate in this dialogue to make sure systems are implemented properly. And, and as you mentioned from the professor Princeton, whether it's policing, job success, terrorist risk at-risk kids recidivism all these different topics and they all have different outcomes some that are more urgent and some that are more important you know we look at the classic case terrorist. you know you go to an airport we have facial surveillance attached to our passport to know if we can board a flight i don't think many people are going to oppose asking the government no, I don't want you to have this, you know, you know, they want to make sure terrorists are not boarding planes. So I'm like, okay, makes sense. But in other cases, that's where the challenge is like job success, job hiring, gender bias for credit cards with Apple. I mean, are you kidding me? We're in 2019 where, you know, I had this conversation (laughs) a few weeks ago with one of my um, colleagues who said, you know, have you noticed how in the rest of the world, there's not really a big conversation on gender in computer science. You're a man, you're a woman, and you're smart. You're my equal. You're my peer. You know, it doesn't matter. You're, you're fantastic. We, we're all working together. But in the US, it's, something has changed. I don't know if it's culturally, socially, wherever that divergence happened. And there's a lot of research that says maybe it's somewhere around sixth and seventh grade or entering high school. Somewhere there, we have a lot less focus on STEM and, um, Making sure that the girls of today are willing to and capable and allowed the access to be on the same playing field as men in computer science and in the fields that we're growing with. And so when you share that comment earlier in the apple cart, I mean, that just triggered in me to say like, are we not beyond this would you not think apple engineers are beyond this that they would exclude that parameter from the machine learning but perhaps not yet and and you wonder where the breakdown in communication and human centered design goes wrong but like you said we should be constructive to look towards the future to see what's next and and i think we're going to be moving there i think predicting social outcomes is is the next step i mean we've heard about them all throughout this whole journey for election cycle 2020, right? Whether those social outcomes or taxes or healthcare is affordable housing. I think there's a lot more work to be done there. And, and I'm always really excited to, to see the use cases that you're describing DataKind's working on. And anyway, I just want to tie that all together to hear about, you know, what's next? What are some of the, the next challenges and projects or exciting things that uh, yourself and DataKind are working on?
1: You know, it's funny. You, you said it best at the front. It's still incredibly new. And so, yes, it's it's 2019, but 2019 in an age of a technology that we've really barely gotten our hands around. And so one of the things that we are really committed to seeing is a world like you described, where we may not have cases of things like gender bias in these technologies if perhaps more folks who are affected by the technology were involved in the design and oversight of the process. And also outside of, I think, what are the kind of traditional business models for creating technology? If you want to create machine learning or AI right now, Chances are the only place you could do that has the resources is a university or a company. And as I was sort of saying before, AI is an accelerant for the goals of those, those institutions. So, you know, you're mostly going to work on tools that if you're a company, you can sell to people or a university, maybe advance your research. Um, But we want to create a space where communities can actually build the AI technologies they want for the social outcomes they need. And so as I was saying, you know, the a little bit alluded to this this impact practice approach we're really transforming data kind now taking the network and trying to move from just doing individual projects to saying hey for significant social challenges how can we support the ecosystem of players trying to tackle them so uh, for example one of the first issue areas this impact practices we're working on is in the uh, community health worker space the challenge here is that the world health organization has said, look we we are far behind where we need to be if we're going to hit our health goals for 2030. A whole set of goals the UN put out called the Sustainable Development Goals, we touch on various health outcomes ranging from infant mortality to uh, reduction of disease that we believe if we hit, we'll live a better life. And we're really far behind that, especially because a lot of areas just don't have good health infrastructure, they just are not hospitals. I mean, you and I think about going to a clinic or a hospital here in the US as if it's, you know, an annoyance, but available. But, you know, imagine in parts of uh, you know East Africa, there's just None of that infrastructure. You just you'd have to walk miles, right, to get that care. And so there's been these innovations in something called community health workers, folks in the community who actually go deliver health outcomes by going door to door, kind of like an on call doctor. And so it's been identified as this intervention that might actually bridge this gap. People believe if you could have more community health workers, well trained, well resourced, might be able to bring down this gap between where we are and where we need to be with healthcare. The challenge is there that even though a lot of digitization has actually happened in that space, a lot of health workers even in these kind of low resourced areas have mobile phones and tablets to do their their uh, their rounds it's just not a lot of data scientists there's not you know we all know technologists data scientists are incredibly expensive they're often here in the west it's just there's a total resource inequity there uh, i'd say even with the technologists in the east like in east africa it's hard for these organizations to afford and work with them and so we've been you know sort of approaching a number of, of collectives and working with collectives there that are trying to help community health workers become more effective to say hey, we'd be willing to work with you on understanding if and how data science algorithms could help with any of this work. And what I really like about this model is in the past, we might've said, hey, we're just going to work with one group, try to help them with their community health workers. But in this approach, because of course there are thousands of technologists in the data kind network, we've talked to about 30 organizations now, I think about 15 of which are going forward with projects, that we can put teams on sort of all in parallel. And across them, we think we have if we were to work with all of these groups have pretty good coverage of most of the community health worker digital platforms to then answer questions like, what would it take to kind of automatically check data quality? One of the big challenges in these systems is that if there are data anomalies, they can really erode trust in the system. The governments won't trust the data. They won't adopt these programs. But now as community health workers using digital platforms like mobile to input their data, it's too much for just a human operator to you know kind of scan all of that, right? So the question now is, how might you use uh, you know, anomaly detection on these systems to help human oversight? And again, where well, we might have worked with one group to do that before, now we can work with, say, the five major players on this and say, hey, if we can solve it, what does it take to really solve this challenge across all these organizations? And more importantly, we, again, we're not beholden to having to build a product for you know, our, our shareholders. You know, I say we, again, kinds more the facilitator. It's, it's not us. We don't really, you know, we're a public good. So this can take some time. You know, community members can be involved all through the process. Community health workers uh, weighing in on both the design and the oversight of these systems. And the hope is that by doing this, two things will happen. One, we'll find these opportunities. Like I said, it probably won't solve it, but it's more likely we'll say, hey, this prototype worked for these three groups. And therefore, this could be developed across the space. It's more than just a fun one-off project. It could actually help it be taken forward at scale. And also, I think we have an opportunity to demonstrate how to build this kind of technology in a way that meets the criteria we talk about when we talk about ethical AI. It has no motive but the positive health outcomes. That is what it's designed for. The people overseeing it are both the administrators, the NGOs, and the community health workers, and that we keep working with them until it gets the outcomes it wants, can make it transparent. I think that's really the the promise of this approach. So so that's what comes next. We're going to be going into these issue areas. Uh, Community health work is going to be number one. We're going to be also looking at inclusive growth and kind of financial inclusion second but the goal is over the next five years to do 10 of these so we're always open to those ideas because of that we're always expanding the network as well so we're looking this year to open up new chapters of folks in their own cities who want to run data kinds programs again with the strong belief that you know the best change the most important change happens when local communities are driving these these decisions themselves and no matter what, whether that's the kind of thing that excites you or you just want to be a part of the Data for Good movement, come aboard. You know, join us at datakind.org, get involved, uh, or many of the other Data for Good, AI for Good groups that exist out there. I think what's most important is that folks take part in some way in this because uh, we're all part of this system. And the more that we can use our skills to do
2: good, the better it's going to be. I could not have said that better. And, you know, I think we're moving into a world where everything's being defined by data. It starts with collecting. It starts with the digital trust that you're talking about with the community health work in parts of Africa and globally. It moves from data labeling into considering the machine learning and AI. So I think this whole workflow is becoming more mature. It's exciting to see the social good, these predictive outcomes that are only becoming possible now. And I think positive social outcomes is what we have to focus on. And if we think of these positive social outcomes, then ethical AI just becomes part of our workflow. It becomes an everyday occurrence that we're always thinking, How do we help? How do we become good stewards of society? And by doing that, we're only being humane and it's data kind for all.
1: I love it. I think that's perfect. Uh, It couldn't have said it
2: better. Excellent. Well, Jake, thanks so much for being with us on the Humane Podcast today. Really appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich. And if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts spotify or luminary thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode new releases are every tuesday
1: everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.
2: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes